I've measured out my days Life carried me along In my soul I learned to follow God But knew I'd never be so strong Looked hard at this world To learn how heaven could be gained Just to end where I began With human effort is all in vain Were it not for grace I can tell you where I'd be wandering would go the battles I would face forever running but losing the race were it not for grace So here is all my praise Expressed with all my heart Offered to a friend Who took my place And ran a course I could not stop And when he saw it His love would cost He still went the final mile Between me and heaven So I would not be lost Were it not for grace The battles I would face Forever running But losing the race Were it not for grace Forever running But losing the race Were it not for grace
when you're weary and feeling small when tears are in your eyes I will dry them all I'm on your side oh when times get rough
Good evening. When Elvis used to sing that song, he used to have, you know, he'd go like that at the end of the... You know, he had the cape on and everything. Gosh, talk about ostentatious. I think Roger Daltrey did the spin on the microphone. El- yeah, he did that. Uh, Elvis just did the, you know, posing, you know. When he was younger, he actually, you know, danced a little bit, swivel hips. Anyways, he was a guy who was uh, swivel Yeah, he did a good, a lot of gospel stuff, a lot of good gospel stuff. In fact, he used to, they say that he used to, uh, you know, uh, invite you know, all these Hollywood stars and everything after his Las Vegas shows. And they, at the, you know, they, you know, all the way till dawn, you know, late at night, all the way to dawn, and they would be singing all these gospel songs around the piano, and you had Sammy Davis Jr. and, you know, all these people, actors, listening to them. And that was Elvis's way of trying to evangelize them, you know. But uh, anyways, uh, good evening. Can you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Thanks. Uh, Titus up there. Titus is back behind the controls tonight. Trent did a great job last night. Good to see Titus and Jody here. I missed them. They're only away one day. They won't be here Sunday, so I'll miss them then too. But anyways, uh, thank you for Keaton uh, for uh, doing the slide. You did a great job. You're really getting that clicking thing going. Did you try to go like this and you know try to do all kinds of moves? You did the behind the back thing. Good. That's good. Good. You'll be a point guide before you know it. All right. We have Romans chapter 15, verse 7, and um, we're going to. Uh, Note verse 10 here this evening, and uh, we're in this part of the, uh, the epistle where uh, Paul's actually finishing off the argument of the epistle. Because remember, in, beginning in Romans 1.16, and it goes all the way to Romans 15.13, we have Paul's presentation of his gospel. And uh, so uh, we see that we're winding down to that main argument. When you get to Romans 15.14, there's uh, several different miscellaneous items that he goes through. Uh, at the end of uh, the final section and uh, the final chapter. So uh, we're getting approaching that uh, toward the end of this epistle. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, he's been talking in the context of uh, Jew and Gentile. And remember, the, uh, the Jewish believers were, uh, the, the weak were primarily Jewish believers and the strong were primarily Gentile believers. So he, if you notice through the whole epistle, this, the whole argument, he's trying, this thing that keeps coming up is that Jew and Gentile, God wants Jew and Gentile to worship him. He provided salvation for Jew and Gentile. So he's actually going to show the Jewish believers again that, you know, the Gentiles have been promised salvation in your Old Testament scriptures. And uh, he's going to quote uh, several, uh, we saw last evening he quoted uh, uh, Psalm 18.49 and this evening he's going to quote in, in Romans 15.10 he's going to quote a little bit of Deuteronomy 32.43 to substantiate his claim that God's redemptive purpose through his son includes not only the Jews the, the covenant people of God but also the Gentiles and as we see as we saw last evening in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11-22 through 22, Paul's talking about uh, through Christ, God has created a new humanity. Remember, the, the old creation with Adam as the head fell, and so God, with Christ, has created a new humanity, and with his son, Jesus Christ, is the federal head of that particular humanity. And so uh, he's calling out both Jew and Gentile to compo- help compose this new humanity. So this is a, uh, a fantastic uh, particular study because it's talking about and it's actually kind of, it's connected, the things he says here, the quotes he has, 
in the Old Testament are talking about the Gentiles worshiping Jesus Christ along with the Jews during his millennial reign. That's what it's all coming. These scripture quotations are going to uh, actually for uh, predicting. So uh, this is something that it has application for us because uh, get ready because we're going to be part of that. I mean, that's going to, and we're the, actually the church is the bride of Christ. So uh, this is pretty, pretty amazing that it's going to be quite a sight, the millennial reign and all that's going to go on there. And we're going to be there in resurrection bodies. And it's just going to be phenomenal with no devil on the earth. And uh, we won't be in sin natures anymore. We'll have resurrection bodies. And uh, so it's just going to be a fantastic time. And so Paul is looking forward to that time where Jew and Gentile are worshiping Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he's looking forward to try to make sure, to, in order to encourage his the Jewish believers in Rome and the weaker, uh, the Gentile believers in Rome to maintain their unity. As we saw many times, Romans 1.8, Romans 15.14 and 15, Romans 16.19 all tell us uh, that Paul under, was very much aware that the Roman believers were an exemplary church. They, were, they exemplified Christian conduct not only as individuals, but as a local assembly. And he knew about them because he got reports from people. When we get to Romans 16, 1 through 13, there's a whole slew of people that he sends greetings to in Rome. These people gave him reports, and he knew a lot about the Roman, uh, Roman uh, church. Some believers, some people, even Bible expositors, Bible expositors, I think J. Vernon McGee was one of them, thought that actually Paul, though he never got to Rome, actually started that church in Rome. I don't believe that at all. We know Peter didn't start the church because Paul says he, would, he never built on another man's foundation. So therefore, if he wouldn't go to Rome if that was Peter's church that he started there. Because he never built on another man's foundation. So we know it wasn't Peter started the church in Rome, which the Catholic Church believes. So I just simply believe that they were Jewish individuals or people who were there on the day of Pentecost. Remember that it says they were from all around the Roman Empire. It says in Acts chapter 2. And some of them were from Rome. And they went back to Rome and they spread the gospel. And so that was in probably, what, 33 A.D.? And then Paul wrote Romans from Corinth in 57 A.D. So within a couple of uh, 25 years, the church had flourished in Rome, and they were a great church. So, And Paul had a lot of contacts over there in Rome. So there's a lot of cool stuff that we're going to be studying. But this is the future that we have planned for us, that God has planned for all of us. So Paul uses that future to encourage the Roman believers to maintain their unity, both Jew and Gentile believers. So, without further ado, let's get underway. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to prepare ourselves. We apply 1 John 1, 9 so that we can be restored to fellowship. We maintain that fellowship by being filled with the Spirit as commanded of us in Ephesians 5.18. We do that by obeying what the Spirit says to us and the Scriptures. We study this, uh, the mechanics of the filling of the Spirit in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. So when we're filled with the Spirit, then we can listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying to us through the teaching of the Word of God. That's when we can make application, and that's where we can really grow spiritually. And uh, so this is a very important time. If there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you at this time, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day to gather together with other members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, to worship you and your son, Jesus Christ, through the study of the Bible, the Scriptures, and through the power of the Spirit. We do this, Father, and we thank you so much for the gift of the Spirit who makes it possible for us to enjoy our union and identification with your Son, who makes it under, the Word of God understandable to us. We thank you for, him, for his inspiring the human authors of Scripture to put down with perfect accuracy your will, purpose, and plan for our lives. And we just thank you, Father, for giving us revelation in the Scriptures, and in particular our study of Romans in regards to the, your plan from eternity past to bring both Jew and Gentile into fellowship with you, into an eternal relationship with you through faith in your Son and in the power of the Spirit. We just thank you, Father, for revealing these ex wonderful and exciting things and future that we have planned, that we're going to be worshiping you and your Son throughout our eternity, not just your millennial, his millennial reign, your Son's millennial reign, but also through all eternity, Father. And we thank you, Father, for the, the guarantee of a resurrection body. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that your word states that you cause all things to work together for good for, for those who are characterized as loving God, the Christian. And we know that everything in life, even when we're uh, out of fellowship and we're going in the wrong direction and we're under divine discipline, we know that, that that divine discipline is for our good to get us back into fellowship, to cause us to confess our sins and to get back into fellowship. So we know that no matter what, you're, you're on our side and you're for us and not against us. And that you've sent your son to the cross for us when we were your enemies. And now that we're in your family, we truly believe what your word says, that you will now freely give us all things and have through our union with your son. So help us in this ministry and all believers throughout this, uh, this country and the world to understand the implications of this so great salvation. And that they have this deliverance now and that they can appropriate it by faith, faith in your word. And so, Father, we just pray, Father, also that you would raise up positive volition, uh, and not only in our ministry, but throughout those, this country and the world. And we also pray, Father, that you would help us in this ministry to maintain our pr uh, proper uh, priorities and to help us make the tough decisions that need to be made in life. Help us to look at everything in life, the jobs that we have, the relationships that we have, our prayers. Help us to all these things, to look at these things in light of your plan for our lives to become conformed to the image of your Son so that we can make the proper decisions. Help us in this ministry to light, live in light of the imminent return of your Son, Jesus Christ, at the rapture, or, or in light of the imminent, uh, our imminency of our death, Father, because we know that at any time you could take us home. So help us to live godly lives by living in light of the imminent return of your Son or, or in light of the imminent our imminency of our death so that we can experience our sanctification and bring glory to you and receive rewards that glorify you at the Bema Seat. And we pray, Father, for those individuals that have made their way into the chapel this evening and might be listening to us on the Internet, on Pal Talk, or viewing the classes at a later date, or listening to them on the website at a later date, that the Spirit, we pray for them, that the Spirit would work mightily and powerfully in and through them, and that they would carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here this evening. We pray, Father, that no one would do anything to disturb or distract any of those who are here that are serious students of the Word of God. We pray that you would also give grace to the communicator, help him, empower him to deliver your full counsel to your people so that it would minister to them and, of course, magnify you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as a result of this Bible class, we'd grow in a greater love and appreciation, Father, for you, your plan for our uh, lives and eternity past, and also for all that you've done for us 
in the past are doing for us now and will do for us in the future through both your Son and the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray for these things in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this evening we're going to note Romans 15.10, as I noted earlier at the top of the hour. In this passage, Paul's going to cite uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Now, uh, he's now going to quote from the law. Remember that the Jews, uh, right now Jewish scholars and, uh, and Christian scholars, we divide the Old Testament into three portions. Uh, we, you know, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, it used to be just law and the prophets, they, they divided it up. But over the years, the Jews have broken it out into three different sections, and Christians, Christian scholars have uh, jumped on the bandwagon with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. So we see it's actually what Paul does here in Romans 15, 9 through 12. He quotes from each of the three major divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And here he's going, this evening in Romans 15, 10, we're going to see that he quotes a snippet of Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43, which of course is one of the books that compose the Torah, or as we call it, the Mosaic Law, the first five books of our English Bible. We also call it the Pentateuch. And so Deuteronomy is that fifth and final book in the Pentateuch. And he quotes from it here, and at the very end of it, he quotes it, and it's actually taken from a song of Moses. Not only did King David write songs, but Moses wrote songs. And uh, it's interesting, Moses wrote a couple of songs that are in the scriptures, but Moses was a, quite an individual, and if we ever get to ex- Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, we'll be talking a lot about him and his, how wonderfully blessed he was by God. But he wrote a song, and Paul's going to actually take a portion of that uh, song and use it in Romans 15.10. And he's going to use this particular passage in Deuteronomy 32.43 to support his affirmation and Romans 15:8, and the first statement in verse 9, that God's redemptive purpose through His Son not only includes the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, that is not a phenomenal statement to us here in the 21st century because the, the, the Christian church is composed primarily of Gentile believers. There's a lot of Jewish believers, people getting born again and saved uh, all over the place that are Jewish. And uh, there's the Jews for Jesus movement is big. And uh, so we see that, uh, but primarily right now, and for many, for, for, for you know, all the way since the big, you know, the mid of the part, midway point of the first century, it's primarily Gentiles that are composing the church. So we see that uh, that uh, you know, when Paul when Paul says here uses Old Testament scripture to support his affirmation that God's redemptive purpose through the Messiah not only included the Jews but also the Gentiles, we don't think we don't think that big, that's a big deal. But in the first century, that was a big deal. When this was written, this epistle, Romans, in, from Corinth in 57 AD, that's the midway point of the first century, there was a lot of problems. The church was trying to, it was having Jew and Gentile intermingling and uh, for the first time in history. And they, they, it was culture shock, as we've seen. And you had the Jews who were steeped in the law, and then, you know, they had, they, they had uh, an a appreciation for, uh, for the things of God, uh, even though maybe many of them were not saved. However, the Gentiles on the other side came from pagan idolatry and a lot of sexual immorality was there. They went to temple prostitutes. Part of their worship of some of the pagan deities is that they had sex with temple prostitutes, male and female. So we see that that's where they came from, a lot of these peop- these Gentile believers. And now, uh, now you see that they're in fellowship in, in, a, in, a, in a local assembly with Jewish believers who were quite moral in comparison. 
And so they had, and they had all their dietary regulations, the Jews, and observance of certain days like the Sabbath. So there was culture shock between the two groups as they entered into the body of Christ through faith alone and Christ alone and started to have fellowship with each other. So Paul had to deal with that and the apostles had to deal with that in the first century, in the early church uh, history, in the apostolic era of the church age. And so this was a, uh, Paul's statements here in, in the book of Romans, in, in his argument in Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13 uh, would be quite shocking to some Jews because uh, Jews had a lot of great prejudice towards Gentiles. And we saw the reason was that is because of the Pharisaical teaching. Now, as I pointed out earlier this week, the Pharisees started off on the right foot. Actually, their name is derived from a term that means to separate. And we see that the Pharisees came into being to call Israel back to the law, back to the temple worship, back to worshiping the Lord Yahweh. And they were and, and to, to basically galvanize the country back to God. And uh, like, it's, like the prophets try to do throughout Israel's history. So they had a good intention. However... Uh, they, they thought that sal uh, salvation, eventually they thought that salvation was by keeping the law and not through faith in the coming Messiah. So therefore that they became very legalistic and as they were trying to do their best to get away from pagan idolatry, which the Jews fell into, uh, in their quest to do that, they, they, they disengaged themselves from the Gentile races. They wouldn't have anything to, to do with the Gentile races. They were, uh, they would try to keep them separate from the Gentile races. And so therefore there was this, they actually caught, and Jesus mentions this in the gospel and actually uses the term, he, they called the Gentile, Gentiles called, were called by the Jews dogs. So they, they did not think very well of the Gentiles. They actually, was a lot of racial prejudice on the part of the Jews toward the Gentiles and, of course, vice versa as well, as we've seen throughout history. So Paul, here we go, that we have Jesus Christ comes, comes along, God becomes a man, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead on the third day, he ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, we have the gift of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then they're proclaiming the gospel, 3,000 Jews get saved on the day of Pentecost, and then in Acts 10, Cornelius is the first Gentile family to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then it just took off. You read the book of Acts from chapter 10 on, it's basically Gentiles are flocking to Christ. They're flocking to Christ, and that's continued to be the case all the way up to our day and age today. But in the first century, as these Jewish believers were intermingling with Gentile believers, there were problems. And Paul, as we've seen in, in Romans 14, uh, anticipates these things. The Romans were a good church. They weren't having problems, but he wanted to... He said the things he did, as he mentions in Romans 15, 15, to remind them so that they continue to maintain their unity. So, but the, a lot of churches throughout the first century had problems and, uh, with these things. And there were problems. The Jewish believers had certain convictions about the law, the dietary regulations of the law, and the Gentiles, of course, who were not raised in the law could care less. So we see that, that this is what Paul is dealing with. And so uh, what we get from this study what we're to get out of this study is unity, maintaining unity. And we might not have problem with, with problems with, between Jewish and Gentile believers in our church, and it's probably not the case throughout the world. Uh, regardless, it is a call that we're to be unified. And uh, we might not be, uh, have to deal with Jewish believers, but what we do find is that 
God has said to us that He's accepted everybody through faith alone and Christ alone. Every believer is accepted through faith alone and Christ alone. And we're to accept each other. And we're to operate in love toward each other. And operate in that very love that you, only the love that you can have in the, that you can exercise, excuse me, exercise through the power of the Spirit. You can't do it in your own power, your own human flesh, your own uh, rationalism. You can't do it. God will show you you can't do it. You can only love like God does and His Son does, self-sacrificially through self-denial and the power of the Spirit. So we see that this is what we've derived from this study of Romans 14.1 all the way up to Romans 15.13, which closes that section, is that we're to operate in love toward each other, not condemn each other for convictions that are related to non-essentials. And I think you know what I mean by non-essentials now and what is, what is essential. And we're not to divide over those things. So this is the call that we have as a church. And listen to me, and I guarantee you that somewhere down the road, because somebody wasn't listening to me, they're going to be nitpicking and being one of those people that will divide and cause a big ruckus over something that's non-essential. Guarantee you. You know why? Because God tests us for the things that we learn. So listen very carefully to what I say, because you and I will be tested somewhere down the road, and some are going to fail, and some are going to pass the test. So I want you all to pass the test. That's why I say, if you can't get here, you better get the CD. You better get go to the website. There's no reason for anybody to miss a class. Not now when we have the technology we have. So very important. This is a very, we're in the part of the epistle that's very practical. It's a very practical portion of the epistle. Paul is teaching us as a local assembly through the power of the Spirit how to maintain unity, how to have unity, how to maintain unity, and how to glorify God. This is what we're, we're learning here in Romans 15, uh, Romans 14, 1 to Romans 15, 13. So again, in Romans 15, 10, Paul's going to cite Deuteronomy 32, 43 to support his affirmation and Romans 15, 8 and Roman, the first statement in Romans 15, 9 that God's redemptive purpose from eternity past through his son not only includes the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now look at Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another, not just as, but as we saw, because of, kathos is, is uh, causal, because Christ has accepted us. Now if we accept one another, he says this will, the purpose of accepting one another is for the glory of God. So when you accept one another, that demands that you operate in love. And when you operate in love, you're manifesting God's love. Because we can only, uh, uh, we're to operate in God's love, remember, and thus we're glorifying God. When we glorify God, that's, uh, uh, there's two different, two, two different ways we've seen that you glorify God. Uh, verbally, thanksgiving, praise, singing, uh, but also through, mainly through your actions, your conduct. And so if we accept one another, he's saying, we'll bring glory to God. Then he says in verse 8, which is going to explain, verse 8 is going to explain the statement, because Christ also accepted us. Why did he do that? For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's a title for the Jews, on behalf of the truth of, the, of God, or we could say because of God's faithfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. 
Remember the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We saw that in Genesis 12.3, Genesis 22.18. In you, Abraham, and in particular, your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, that God, anytime a Gentile believer believes in Jesus Christ, he has become, became a partaker of those blessings that were given to Abraham. He becomes, he receives the gift of the Spirit. And we saw that this is, this is what he's talking about here. Those promises of the Father, fathers, not only included personal promises and national promises to the patriarchs, but also universal or international promises, meaning that through the Jewish race, and in particular Jesus Christ, that we'll see the Gentiles receive salvation. So this is, this is awesome that we studied Genesis because it's, uh, Paul quotes from Genesis quite a bit and every, a lot of things he says in this epistle he's alluding to uh, from Genesis as well. So then he goes on to say in verse 9, and verse 9, the first statement there is connected to verse 8. It gives you the second purpose for Christ being a servant for, to the Jews because of the faithfulness of God. The first purpose was to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The second was so that the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy, as we saw his grace. Then to support that, he quotes Psalm 1849. He says, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. And that's Jesus Christ saying this to the Father. I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. When will he do that? The millennial reign. And I will sing to your name. I'll sing praises of your character and nature. That's what the word name is talking about. Then he goes on. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. And his, that his human nature was, in his human nature, he descended from King David, whose father was Jesse. And then he says, and he who arises, that talks about his resurrection when we get there, we'll show you that, to rule over the Gentiles. In him, Christ, shall the Gentiles have confidence. They'll have confidence in him. And that is being fulfilled right now in our day and age. Are we not Gentile believers? Don't we have our confidence in him? Absolutely. And so this is being fulfilled. We're fulfilling prophecy right now. Now, when you go when you go to work tomorrow, you can say, do you know I'm fulfilling prophecy right now? And your friends will go, you know, Sharon, go do that to your boss tomorrow. Say, hey, I'm fulfilling prophecy right now. And they're going to look at you. Kind of, then you can just explain to them, hey, it was predicted that Gentiles would believe in the Son and pray, have confidence in Him, have faith in Him, and give praise to Him. And that is being fulfilled in my life. I'm a Gentile. Pretty cool. We are actually fulfilling prophecy right now as we speak. So let's look at verse 10 because that's not going to be our verse for the rest of the evening. It says in verse 10, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. His people being, of course, the Jews. Again is the word Pauline and it marks the quotation from Deuteronomy 32.43 as related to the previous scripture quotation and the second statement in Romans 15.9 which is from Psalm 18.49 in that, it marks Deuteronomy 32.43 as related to Psalm 18.49 and that it further supports Paul's affirmation in Romans 15.8 and the first statement in verse 9. Now when it says, he says, uh, it actually should be translated, it says. 
because he's speaking of the scriptures. I'll tell you why in a minute. In fact, I think the Net Bible and the Americans, uh, the English Standard Version Bible uh, does as well. So he says, he, uh, the phrase he says is the present active indicative form of the verb lego. And it refers to the content of what the Lord communicated through Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 43, which Paul is quoting here in Romans 15, 10. Now, the third person singular form of this verb should be translated it, not he says. It shouldn't be he, it should be it. Why? Well, the context tells us. It's referring to the Old Testament scriptures rather than he, which refers to David. Why? Because David's not speaking here. The Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write what he wrote in Romans 15.10, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32.43. That's why we don't say he here. We say it. Because he's referring, he's just talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Also further indicating that the third person singular form refers to the Old Testament is the perfect middle indicative form of the verb grapho in Romans 15.9. If you look at Romans 15.9, he says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. The word it, it is written is grapho. It is written is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And we should say, again, it says. Let me show you on the board. I'll just show you real quick what I'm, what I'm talking about. See if I can blow up this little, uh, this little slide here. It's pretty cool. And I'll show you the different, the different translations here. So if you look at the Net Bible, right here, the first one, it says, and again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The ESV, which is an excellent Bible, that's what we call, they try to go to, the, uh, they're not dynamic equivalents, they try to be as literal as they can to get the scriptures as, uh, translated as literal as you can. And it says in, in their translation, and again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The NIV, again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So we see, and then the, the, New, America, the New Revised Standard Version does what the New American Standard says. So uh, this is why one of the things I point out, no translation is perfect. I always have several different translations, but, uh, you know, they're great translations. I mean, it does, I mean, the fact that it says, it says there, instead of, it should say it instead of he, doesn't change the sense of the passage at all. I'm just trying to give you, I'm trying to teach you what it says. I'm trying to help you there to understand the text so you get it accurately. That's my job. So, uh, again, he, when it says, uh, it, he says, it should actually mean it says. Now, Paul is quoting, it's interesting, he's quoting exactly from the third line of the Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 32.43. And that is quoting the first line in the Hebrew text. Now, the Septuagint, remember, in the first century, always remember this, that the, uh, the, 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 the apostles and Paul he quotes extensively from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, uh, when Paul used the Septuagint, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had no problem with him using the Septuagint if it was accurate, if it was translating the Hebrew accurately. In fact, if the Septuagint did a lousy job translating a Hebrew word, I've seen Paul translate it a different way than what the Septuagint did. So Paul went for accuracy. But the, the Septuagint, I want to tell you something, to understand uh, why it was used so extensively by the first century church, is that was their Old Testament scriptures, is that, first of all, Jewish believers, most Jews, because of the dispersions, 
You know, they were deported from by Assyria, Babylon, uh, you know, eventually Rome. We see that they lost them. They didn't all understand Hebrew anymore. The Pharisees were brought up in, in the scribes, knew Hebrew, obviously, the ones who copied the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. But a lot of them had become Hellenized. They, become, they were mainly Greek-speaking, the Jews. So that's why in 300 B.C., they were clamoring for a translation in Koine Greek, the Greek that Alexander the Great started and, uh, and, and, and spread throughout the, uh, all his conquered territories. So we see that that translation was uh, by Jewish scholars, about 70 of them, and approximately 300 B.C. in a city of Egypt called Alexandria, a tremendous city of learning, much like the city that Paul came from, Tarsus. So this translation, we had the church coming in. Gentile believers, they all they didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. And the Septuagint, obviously, God wanted that Septuagint translation in effect so that he could have his the Gentile believers that would be coming into the church so that they'd have a translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Kind of like today, we use English translations, right? Who here knows Hebrew here? Who knows the Greek? No, we go, we go on a translation. That's the way it was in the first century. Instead of English, it was, it was Greek. Because that was the common language of the day. That was the language of the Roman Empire. And so we see that Paul's going to quote from it here. And it's also interesting. I did a study on this today. Um, I'm working on Romans 15, 21. I'm still working on it. But it's interesting. When we talk about Paul quoting Old Testament scripture, He's quoted this, he actually accounted them all. He quotes 70 scripture, there's 70 different times in the Roman epistle that he quotes in the Old Testament. 70 times. So he knew his Old Testament, they, that was their Bible back then. And when Paul wrote Romans, they were in the process of writing the epistles. The, the gospels weren't even written yet. The gospels weren't written until 60, 70, 80, and 90 AD. John was the last one. So you see, and we saw it earlier in Romans, Paul, in order to support something that Christ did, he uses the Old Testament scripture instead of going to the Gospels because that's all they had at that time. Of course, uh, the apostles had their, their teaching. They had their eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it, hadn't, it, might, it might have been put down in writing at that time. We don't know. That's a big, you know, there's a lot of uh, discussion among scholars but we do know we got the Gospels and that was the record that was preserved by the Holy Spirit for us to, to, to see. So we see that, uh, that Paul quotes extensively the Old Testament. And that's why I know some Bible teachers, they will only teach the New Testament. I think someone like John MacArthur, who is a big Bible teacher out there, who actually teaches Lordship Salvation, which is very bad. But he's a, he is, a, outside of that, he's, he's excellent. But we see that he he he, believe, he only teaches in the New Testament. Well, I go back. I try to go back and forth. You know, I, I, you know, we did Romans, we did Genesis, and so now after we do Romans, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. And don't ask me what it's going to be. I won't tell you. Keep it in the secret because I think I already know what it is. I'm already researching it and everything. So we see that Paul quotes extensively the Old Testament. That means we should know our Bibles too. We should know our Old Testament. That's why knowing Genesis. It's interesting too. I did a little bit of. Uh, look-see around what I've taught on since I got here in August of 2001. We taught all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. We've, in fact, I think there's not one book that I, I haven't touched in, in the Bible that at some point here I've taught on it. I've gone to one chapter here or there or gone done a couple of chapters of a book, 
So it's, we've gone all over the place. You know, we, you, you, know, you, know, uh, you know, when Paul goes to the Old Testament, I'm going to the Old Testament to show you. So here Paul, in Romans 15.10, he's quoting from this, the exactly, from the third line of the Septuagint translation, of Deuteronomy 32.43, which itself is quoting the first line in the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. Now this text is similar to the Septuagint translation of Psalm 17.50, and that it too calls for God's people to rejoice over his acts in subduing nations and his enemies. This line from Deuteronomy 32:43 is taken from a song Moses wrote shortly before his death. Remember, he couldn't go into the promised land because he struck the rock twice. He, Moses had a temper, by the way. If you read, <laughs> you read uh, the, the Old Testament, Moses had a problem with his temper. And that, that got him in trouble. He killed an Egyptian with his bare hands. And then he had a head out of town. He was out in the desert for 40 years. God was training him out there for 40 years. And then he was brought back into the fold to, uh, to lead God's people. And then, you know, he had a terrible congregation. He had two million people bitching and complaining at him all the time. And it's unbelievable. You read, you read numbers, you read, the, you know, it's just ridiculous. This poor guy, no wonder he lost his temper. But anyways, God didn't, have, want, didn't want any of that. And he, he struck the rock twice. And that part of his, his discipline was, you can't go into the promised land. Because you misrepresented my character and nature, Moses. So he's going into the promised land with the second advent and millennial reign of Christ. He'll be in there. But we see that Moses, just before he died, and also it's interesting with Moses, is that Moses, he's the only person in the history of the world, of all believers, that was personally buried by the Lord Jesus Christ. You read, you read the account there in, in, in the Pentateuch. He was buried by the Lord. In fact, there's an angelic guard around his body. We know Jude says that Satan wanted to get the body of Moses. We speculate. We don't know for sure why, but it obviously was probably just the start of religion or something because Moses was revered. So we see that Moses, we don't know exactly where he's buried. We know, a King we know King David's buried somewhere in Jerusalem in there. Uh, in, but Moses, we don't know. There's an angelic guard on his body. Where that is, I don't know. But that's interesting about Moses. I think it's pretty, pretty amazing. Now, uh, in this passage, in Deuteronomy 32, 43, which Paul's quoting here in Romans 15, 10, God was giving Moses, it's interesting what he does here, God, the Holy Spirit, was giving, Mo giving him, Moses, prophetically, a new understanding of his judgments as well as his blessings. In this song, remember it's a song inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses was giving a prophetic recitation of the history of the nation of Israel until the coming of the millennial kingdom. He's prophesying, as he wrote this song, this song was a prophecy of what's going to happen in Israel's history. God the Holy Spirit told him what's going to happen down through the, re the ages in Israel's history. He, got, he gave Moses a panoramic view of the history of Israel, right down to the millennial kingdom. So it's the, what Paul's quoting from in Deuteronomy 32, 43, is from a, a magnificent, magnificent song. I take you there, but we're running out of time. Now, we see that in the, in the song, Moses was calling on Gentile nations to rejoice with the Jews as they learned of God's power and glory. This will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ when both regenerate Gentiles and Jews will rejoice over the fact that they have been saved through the power of the Spirit who appropriated for them, the Spirit did, the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection the moment they were declared justified through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, let's look at... Uh
Let's look at uh, Romans 15.10. He says here, he says in Romans 15.10, again, rejoice, O Gentiles, or, or again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So Paul quotes this passage because he is not concerned. It's interesting. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32.43 because, uh, because he's not concerned about the cause of Moses calling the nations to rejoice with him in Israel, but rather the call for the Gentiles to rejoice with Israel. He doesn't care about, he's quoting this psalm, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 43. He doesn't care why Moses, the reason why Moses is doing this and singing praises to God and calling for the Gentiles to rejoice along with Israel and rejoice over the Lord. He's just taking, he wants to use the quotation, the, the, the Old Testament scripture, because it does say Moses is predicting, he's calling on the Gentiles to, uh, to praise, give praise to God, to rejoice over the Lord. So this would emphasize with his readers, Paul's readers, who were composed of both born-again Jews and Gentiles, that they must maintain their unity with each other and welcome each other into fellowship with one another because God is calling out Gentiles to rejoice with the Jews. That's why Paul's quote in the scripture, God's redemptive purpose includes both the Jews and the Gentiles, and here it is, Jewish believer, don't get an attitude toward the Gentiles because of their lack of, they don't have the convictions that you have about the dietary regulations, but they're in the family of God, and there's the Old Testament scripture. Moses, the law, the lawgiver, he actually says and prophesies that the Jews and the Gentiles would worship the Lord, that the Gentiles would praise the Lord. Paul was understanding that his ministry, he was an apostle of the Gentiles, his ministry was being a fulfilling prophecy. And every time that we lead somebody to the Lord, and every time a believer comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who's Gentile with fulfilling this prophecy. It's being fulfilled right as we speak. And it's going to be fulfilled right through the millennial reign of Christ to the end of history. In fact, on into eternity, Gentiles will be obeying this command to rejoice with God. Born-again Israel, rejoice over the Lord and over their so great salvation. Now, also, this, would pa this passage would emphasize with his readers that they are to rejoice with each other since both have been declared justified through faith in Christ and have received eternal life and are now members of one another. Now listen to me. Notice that Paul uses scripture to call believers to unity. What should that tell us? When you have a problem with believers and you see some kind of problem with the body of Christ, use scripture. Pray, but use scripture to call them together. You're both excited. You know, let's say, for instance, Sharon has a little problem with Chris and they're having a cat fight. And, you know, Sharon's being a real jerk. But, you know, she... So Sharon's being... Let's say she's having, a, she's having a problem and Chris is having... And they're fighting. Now, we need, as believers, we're to try to bring them together and we're to use Scripture. And we should call... We should call you know, we should say... Forgive one another. Quote, it's called Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Forgive one another, Chris and Sharon, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Or, you know, we could, say, uh, we could say that Keaton, he's having a fight with his brother Garrett. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Use scripture. You know what the scripture's called in Ephesians six seventeen? The sword of the Spirit. That is what Paul is doing here in Romans 15. He's using the sword of the Spirit to get to those Jewish believers, to, to make sure that they maintain that unity. Don't you divide over stupid, silly, petty things. And we shouldn't do that either. 
And when we see believers having problems or we have a problem with a believer, we're to apply scripture. The pastor is to apply scripture. Why should I get along? I had this person, they're having a problem with this other person, this other believer in our ministry. And I said, hey, forgive them. How many times have I said that in Bible class? I didn't say it in that tone of voice. I was nice and sweet. You know how I can be, nice and sweet. But anyway, I'm different from, I'm not the same behind the part. I'm not, you know, it's different when you're teaching, but when you're out there, I just say, they, you know, they forgive one another. I was gentle, that's the word. Forgive one another. You know, didn't we read that? Didn't Jesus, forgive, didn't God the Father forgive us? You know, why can't you forgive them? You know, well, see, I said, now you're being tested. See, see, now it comes down to application. Are you going to apply it? Or is this just something, little, little quote, you know, forgiving one another is a scripture quotation. You know what? It says in Matthew, if you don't forgive one another, God doesn't forgive you, you know. Matthew. He means you won't be back in, he won't put you back in fellowship. If you have a bad attitude and you're unforgiving attitude to your fellow believer, you're out of fellowship. It's not until you confess it and forgive them that you're readmitted to fellowship. You have to you confess the sin and then you got to do what he tells you to do and forgive them. But, you know, but this is where you've got to apply scripture. So Paul's using scripture to maintain unity, to keep believers together. And that is what we should do. We don't need, you know, the psychology. We don't need psychology in the church. Get it out of here. We got enough nuts. We don't need any more nuts in the church, all right? Psychology doesn't solve anything. It pushes things around. Only the word of God, which is alive and powerful, is able to handle the problems of the human heart. And we see that the spirit will help you and guide you in the scripture. It's the sword of the spirit. That's why I keep saying, I want my congregation, and like you guys are very getting growing God's word, to be skillful in the scriptures. Skillful. Not, and you always operate in love to them, because as we saw, you could be skillful in the scriptures and not operate in love. Remember, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. Your knowledge of the word of God should be, should be governed by God's love. So that is very important. So we need to know our Bibles so that God can use us mightily and study scripture every day. Come to Bible class every day. Learn how to interpret your Bible. The pastor is showing you as you teach, as he's teaching. Ask questions. That's all right. That's what we're here. That's what I'm here for. So this is something we need to do. If we want to solve problems, we need to use scripture. And we don't need to coddle people and lie to people or play games or, you know, yell and scream, like a lot of guys do, scream, kick and scream, and, say, and be authoritative and dictatorial, and, you know, because I said so. Well, you know what? That's stupid, because now you, the spirit's not working. That's your flesh. And some guys just do that. I don't try to do that. I don't just say, well, do, you know, do I, anybody ever say me say, do this, da, da, da. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, we see we have to use scripture to solve our problems. And that's what Paul's... Paul's preventing a problem here because the Roman believers were an exemplary church. Paul's using scripture here to prevent a problem from happening, prevent, to prevent division. And we should learn from that. Scripture, know your Bible. Know how to interpret accurately your Bible because there are a lot of people who think that they know their Bible and they don't have any idea and they're pastors who have no idea how to interpret their Bible correctly. They don't pay attention to context. They're all over the place. They, lif they listen to Who's He Dingle, watch Who's He Dingle on television, and he, or now she, has no clue 
what they're doing. I love this woman who's on there late at night, and she's pretty cute. I heard her husband kick the bucket, so God rest his soul. But she's pretty cute, but she's a pastor. It's like, for crying out loud, I'm never going to find a woman for crying out loud. She's a pastor. She, you know, she's up there writing the Greek on the board in the, in the Hebrew. and It's like she never says anything the whole night. What's the point writing the Greek up there? Who are you trying to impress? I mean, it's all right. I like to point out Greek, but you've got to work it into your message. You know, it just, you shouldn't be up there sitting there and, you know, okay, and then for the, for, for a half hour, finally get around to the point. If you notice, I try to, if I'm going to give you Greek, and it's not a lot, believe me. If I throw it, it's mixed in with the message. You don't, I try to make it so you don't even, you know, we go in and out of it, you know. I try not to over, overburden you, but sometimes there's no getting around it. Sometimes the translation's screwed up. I have to go tell you what it is. It says. So, you know, this person, who the heck knows what they're saying? I, I don't, I'm watching the thing. Did they say anything? And their interpretive skills are horrible. Don't pay attention to context. You know, there's all these guys, there's a lot, beware of the people who teach on television. I don't know why, there's only, I think of this, that, who's that guy, Don, that's, that older guy that's on, in the local uh, area? What's his name? Don. You were talking to me about him. Who's that old guy? Yeah, Les. Are you asleep, Don? Okay, you're all right. Nothing. No, I'm just saying Les, that guy Les, remember you were telling me about him? He teaches from the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he, he teaches the Bible. He's pretty good. But uh, there's, you know, Charles Stanley's pretty good. I don't know any too, too many others that I see on television. You know, you're not, you know, don't, you know, Benny Hinn doesn't know what he's doing. Not, has no idea what he's saying. And it's ridiculous. You know, and it, it, it dishonors the Lord. You know, we're to study. The past is us and you too. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Second Timothy 2.15. And so uh, that way, we're able to solve our problems and help others if we know the mind of Christ, which is what the Bible is. Now, we have, we're coming near the end here. It says in Romans 15.10, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Rejoice is the word Ephraino, Ephraino, which means to rejoice. It's correctly translated, and it's in the second person plural form, which of course is referring to each and every born-again Gentile. Now, it's in the aorist imperative form, and it's a constative aorist imperative. It, it indicates to Paul's readers, who were born-again Gentiles, that they were to make it their top priority to rejoice with born-again Jews and do it now. See, it expresses urgency. When it says rejoice, it's an, in the way it's in the Greek, it's expressing an urgency. Don't wait. Do this, is what it says. It indicates to Paul's readers that God does not want divisions between the weak and the strong between Jew and Gentile, but that they are to join together to worship God for their so great salvation. Why? Because they were both saved. Both groups were saved through faith alone and Christ alone. Now, the passive voice, that means that the... When I say passive voice, it's a divine passive. I'll tell you what that means. The passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. For instance, I'm the subject, I. And somebody, when I receive the action from something... Somebody, Sharon throws her cat at me. That would be the passive voice. I'm receiving an action. So the passive voice here, the verb, means that the subject receives the action of the verb from either an expressed or unexpressed agency. Now, who's the subject in our passage? Born-again Gentiles. Now, the unexpressed agency is determined by the context. That's indicated by Romans 15, 8, and 9. And that, this means the unexpressed agency is Christ serving the Jews because of the Father's faithfulness 
in order to fulfill the covenant promises to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles glorify the Father because of His grace. So born-again Gentiles were to make it their top priority to rejoice because they're beneficiaries of God's grace policy. The passive voice says, you're to rejoice and something's making you rejoice. What is it? God's grace. Didn't he say in Romans 15.9? Look what it says. He says in Romans 15.9, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Or as we saw, it mean, the word means grace. It includes mercy. So the passive voice of rejoice there in verse 10, rejoice means that the Gentile believers are receiving something. They're to rejoice because they've received something. What's that? They've received grace. So God's telling us what's the application. Rejoice. You've received grace. You're under, now, I don't even know why I sang that song earlier at the beginning. Now I know why the Holy Spirit, that happens a lot. I don't know why, you notice that, well, Keaton over there. And uh, so we see that, that, that we're to rejoice over grace. God has given us grace. Now it says, O Gentiles, we're coming near the end here. The O Gentiles is the vocative form of the word ethnos, and that refers to all those individuals who are not of Jewish racial descent and thus not members of the covenant people of God, Israel. With his people, that's a prepositional phrase and it's composed of the preposition meta and then with the word, we have the, as its object, the word laos, which is, means people, and then with it we have the intensive personal pronoun altos, which means his. Now this word laos, people, it, it's a reference to the nation of Israel. So when he says, rejoice with his people, O Gentiles, his people there is the Jews the covenant people of God. So the word, the preposition meta, functions as a marker of association, and that indicates that the Holy Spirit, through Deuteronomy 32, 43, is commanding Gentile believers to rejoice together with or in association with Jewish believers. That's what it's telling us. And that will be, that, that will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ. So wrap this up, this study this evening, to summarize what we learned here in Romans 15, 10. Paul's quoting exactly from the third line of the Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 32.43 to support his affirmation in Romans 15.8 and the first statement in verse 9 that God's redemptive purpose through his Son not only includes the Jews, but thank God, us Gentiles as well. And that's the end of that show. We'll see you Sunday morning and we'll continue, we'll study Romans 15.11. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we've heard, encourage us, rebuke us if necessary, instruct us in righteousness through the power of the Spirit. We thank you so much for treating us in grace so that we praise you and thank you for your, the gift of your Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We just stand in awe of you, Father, and we just pray that you would help us apply these things that we've heard this evening. And we also pray that the fellowship would be guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit and that also you would give us traveling mercies on the way home for those in the chapel. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.